You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This week's episode is an interview, and sometimes when you do an interview, sound quality isn't quite what you would hope it would be, but this interview is fantastic, and so I hope that you will forgive us and enjoy. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and we have a very special episode for you this week. I'm very excited uh, to be able to have our guest on uh, to discuss something that has... uh, well, it, it was delayed for quite a while, and it has finally come out. Uh, before we get to that, just want to thank you, everybody, for joining us. And, of course, you know you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just make your, sure you're subscribed so you're getting it, it, the episodes as soon as they drop. Of course, you can find us all over social media. Um, you know, we're on Twitter at The 602 Club on Instagram, 602 Club TFM. Of course, you can find us on Letterboxd as well under 602 Club. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And, of course, the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference. And, of course, the website online at trek.fm. But um, I'm so excited to have with us tonight to talk about uh, his latest book. It has finally come out, even though it was completed quite a while ago. Um, The one and only Paul Duncan. How are you, Paul? I'm great. How are you, Matt? I'm doing really well. It's it's so much fun to to be able to talk to you again. We had previously uh, met up to talk about uh, we had talked about both uh, of your Star Wars archives books, uh, the original trilogy and the prequel edition. And so we're having you here on the Six Hundred Two Club to talk about your latest book, which is the James Bond archives, but special No Time to Die edition. Now completing the series with. Uh, 25 eon films as well as the two other films so oh my gosh uh, first i just got to ask you how you feel now that the book is finally released uh, relieved but also um uh, it's a bit strange because i finished it so long ago yeah uh, because i finished it for the release of, of the movie and obviously with the pandemic and everything that's happened uh, around the world with the uh, with the delay for films to come out at cinemas, etc., um, it, it's almost a surprise now for the book to actually come out. In fact, there's a little factoid here. Um, the book was actually printed, right, ready for release. So, uh, so what happened was the book was printed, but obviously because it was full of spoilers on the movie, it had to be wrapped and held securely, locked up um, before the release of the movie, because obviously nobody wanted spoilers to come out before the right. movie came Yeah, that's, that's so crazy to me that that happened, you know, obviously to the publisher and, of course, you know, I... You know, I, I was I was going to uh, be in Dallas, Texas at the time. I had the tickets to go see the movie. You know, we were going to be at a wedding uh, at that point. It was going to be one. Uh, you know, there's some some really good uh, screens around the country here. 
and this is one of the best screens. It was going to be the IMAX laser. So it was going to be like the best format you could see this in. Uh, and then, of course, it all got canceled, like everybody else, you know, is life for about a year and a half. So, oh, my gosh. Uh, well, I'm I'm excited that it, it's finally released uh, and that I've gotten a chance to, to read it. And um, now that we can finally talk about it. And so. Um, so tell thing- me, what, what, do you, what do you think of the book then, Matt? What, what did you pick well, I mean, I don't mean in terms of praise or anything, but in terms of what did you find out about the book that was in the book that you didn't know before? Oh, um, you know, I, I think there... I've watched all of the behind-the-scenes extras that they've given. Like, I, I remember, and you know, when they did the DVD releases of all the oh, films, you know... They, 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 they did those big the, box, didn't they? Mm-hmm, they did the, yep. Which I have. Yes. Um, And, you know, they had most of the films had a good behind the scenes extra um, documentary that went with them, which was really nice. Yeah, done by John Cork. They were really Mm -hmm. excellent. Yes. Uh, So really well done. Um, And I think one of the things that uh, was really nice about the book um, and and some of the things that I, I didn't know went along with, you know, some of the behind the scenes uh, material you were able to give on each and every one of the films uh, and their production. And honestly, I think the thing I came away with was how from the beginning the films work to differentiate themselves from the books that their goal was never to do, you know, just um, a representation of what Fleming had written. Uh, they were always doing, really, in some ways, their own interpretation and take on his character. And you could clearly see that even from the beginning. Uh, and I thought, to me, you know, it was just fascinating the way in which they crafted each and every film. Um, and that was the thing I really came away with, I think, that was so fascinating. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The, there is a difference between the Ian Fleming Bond and the, the cinematic Bond. And what the first few movies that they made, it was really an attempt for them to try and discover that cinematic Bond. So they... Um, Harry Saltzman and Cooper Broccoli had got the rights, both film and television rights, for James Bond. And um, they tried with the first movie, um, they actually did scripts for Thunderball um, and Dr. No, um, in order to have two writers write screenplays to those two, um, from those two books. And what they found um, was that they preferred to go with Dr. No. There were problems with the rights to Thunderball, they eventually found out. Um, but in those initial treatments, they actually moved further and further away from Bond. And then they brought it back to Bond, to, to the novel. And then they made slight changes. So in other words, they found that um, from that and from what we've looked, and especially the Goldman, um, they understood that what was good about 
Ian Fleming and the Fleming Bond was the character, but the plots didn't work as cinema. The Mushroom Love works as a cinema because it's not an action movie, it's a suspense movie. Right? Um, Bond, it's not from the point of view of Bond, you're not following Bond, you're following Spectre and their, um, uh, their attempts to trap Bond. So you're seeing Bond going to a trap. So it's a different construction. In Doctor No, it's more of um, an action adventure and it's more, you, you would see a lot of these type of movies um, in Kubrick Rocky had made a lot of these type of movies with Warwick films, where they'd go off on some exotic adventure, uh, there'd be a loner, hero, played by Robert Mitchum or Alan Ladd or somebody like that. And uh, they would have an adventure in this exotic location, uh, and then all would be fine. You know, they'd have love interest. And what they did with uh, Goldfinger is that they really define Bond in a different way. They take the first two movies, and they worked out a formula. They worked out the idea of that there's got to be two girls, um, you know, a, a, a good girl and a bad girl, one of them has to die. Um, you know, um, the games with the villain, we'd introduce the villain, and there would be a cat and mouse game with the villain. There would be a certain, obviously, the DB5 car chase gadgets, all these things they were building up. And I think with Goldfinger, that's the one where they said, yes, we've got it. It became an enormous success worldwide, especially in America. I remember, they were doing one a year. So they were very, very quick. And um, at that time, distribution was different. So, um, so you wouldn't have a situation as we have now, where you will have day and date worldwide or within a week. And at that time, you would have a, a film being shown in major cities um, or a limited prestige run. And then it would be rolled out around the country over months. Yeah. So, uh, so it took a long time for interest in Bond to build. So by the third film, in the third year, it just hit. You know, it was Bond and the Beatles. You know, so it was enormous. It was the British invasion. And I think once they hit that formula, and they continued that, and they, they found their cinematic bond, and they worked with that, that bond ever since, as you said. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's really fascinating to me because, uh, like you said, you know, uh, and like many franchises, it takes a while to kind of find what is going to be, you know, your formula. Some films take less, uh, you know, some franchises less than others, but you with Bond, it, you know, it, the first two movies, you can clearly see that, you know, they they have ideas of what that's going to be, and then it all comes together uh, as a whole package, finally, in Goldfinger, like you said, and, and it, it creates the worldwide phenomenon uh, that they will always try to, in, in many ways, be chasing and ca- trying to capture again. Um, and so, uh, and I, I think that's, it, it's something to where every film then becomes kind of graded a, 
on the Goldfinger curve and, um, you know, how far or how close you get to that makes sense. But, and it's, and it is interesting, like you mentioned, you know, as they move forward and, and, and as the series grows, it's like there are places where, you know, you really do grow too far away from, you know, Fleming's original thought process about who the character is and the type of character he is. And in many ways, like many franchises too, you have to find a way to kind of reel it back and kind of get more grounded. And and that happens, you know, a few times throughout the run of Bond. Well, I think that um, the major thing you've got to remember is that we have different actors playing Bond over the years. Right. And, and the actor, the personality of the actor and the interpretation of the actor in many ways um, defines how, how that movie or, or those groups of movies are going to be mm-hmm. made, their tone, their attitude, etc. So, so, for example, John Connery, the very sardonic um, asides, etc., um, which really came from the humour that the director Terence Young had on the first two movies, and him, um, his interaction with Sean Connery and his making of Sean Connery. Sean Connery copied many of the mannerisms, the style of Terence Young in order to create his bond. Um, but that sardonic sense of humour, which they both share, uh, Tension allowed to be in the movie. You know, so, um, okay, you know, he has a good, um, uh, Connery thinks of a good line, or Tension uh, thinks of a good line. Um, okay, let's just do an extra take and see how, how it plays. Yeah. So, uh, so that sort of defines Connery's role and because it's his attitude to the character and how he interprets it and plays it. Roger Moore is completely different than the fish. I mean this is a guy who was the saint for many years. Right. And and his his idea of comedy was has is completely different. His is the aside to the audience. Yeah? His is the um, so he's used that idea of the sardonic aside in order to play it with a different tone, much lightness of tone. Um, he's much more suave and sophisticated. And also, if you have a look at Roger Moore, you can imagine um, Sean Connery uh, sweating and, you know, being in trouble. Right. But, but Roger Moore, no, right? You, you would never see him sweat or, or be troubled by something, yeah? So it was, it was a completely different act. Physical attitude was different as well in the way that he played action. So when I was going through all the archives, etc., I was very happy to find uh, a photo of Roger Moore that he's training, he's doing some of his... Um, uh, martial arts for um, which one was it? Uh, it was for uh, Man with the Golden Gun. And he is drenched <laughs> in, in sweat. 
doing it because he's he's training, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, yes, this is a guy who puts an enormous amount of effort into his performance in in order to make it look effortless, right? And so, mm-hmm. so this is this was part of his definition of the character, uh, and so. And so, even though the formula of some of the stories may remain the same, the interpretations of the characters, um, of the Bond character, is different depending on the actor. Uh, and I, you know, that comes down to the producers casting the actor, in the role, which I think is is very interesting. Yeah, I I really do as well. You know, obviously, uh, the reasons that they they choose each and every person is always was always fascinating to me you know uh having to move away from connery um you know the the frustrations you end up having with uh lazenby um and not because i dislike his film or even like him as bond but it's more him personally um and and the way that ends up going which is too bad for him i mean he makes all the wrong choices there and and you know which he submitted (laughs) exactly you know uh, he knows that he uh, he he messed up or misinterpreted or was uh, um, took bad advice, you know. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think yes. ultimately um, was the way. But you know, these things happen in, in life. You know, uh, I mean, you, um, you know, we all do it. You know, it's just that it's a little bit more public in, in his in his case. Well, right. Well, in in a much bigger. <laughs> It's like a million millions of dollars at stake to decision. <laughs> yeah, but but the thing is, he did make a great movie. So I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's always got that and still got that. You know, so um, I, absolutely. You know, so uh, which you know, no time to die channels. You know, mm-hmm. um, yes, uh, on the Manchester Secret Service more than any other yes. other movies. So. Um, uh, both with its music cues and, uh, and themes, etc. So, um, so no, I don't think um, you know his place in history is assured. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, and and I mean, I think you're you know as we look at you know the the rest of the the people who played Bond, you know, obviously Timothy in many ways is kind of a reaction and and a change to bring the character more down to earth um and you know i think his movies are uh, definitely undersold in their importance for the character um i think he's actually you know as i look at his films you know to me he's the proto craig in many ways and i just don't know if people were absolutely ready for that at that point well i think that yeah i mean I, I love those movies, especially License to Kill, which I think is... Yeah, really, I'm really, the same way. Yeah, it's, it's an exceptionally good movie. And um, I think that the problem is that, if you like, um, you could see Roger Moore in your eyes only. And um, there were moments in that, that where they were verging towards that idea of bringing Bond back. To some Absolutely. Movies more realistic and um, uh, something a bit more serious. Roger Moore didn't like it. You know, he felt that wasn't, that wasn't his character. It wasn't right. in him to do that sort of character. So, um, so the producers understood that. Uh, 
So when Dalton came along, he had the opportunity. He was you know, slightly younger, more athletic. You know, he was willing to to go in and and do you know actually quite dangerous stunts. You know, the, the Gibraltar sequence at the beginning of mm-hmm. um, first movie was, um, you know, Timothy Dalton got on top of the Land Rover and drove at speed around Gibraltar. You know, uh, so uh, so the second unit after Worcester all those, you know, they were delighted. <laughs> You know, to, to have a Bond actor who could get so involved. Um, but I think that it was strange because at that, during that period, and there were a lot of action heroes coming around uh, within, you know, in the cinema um, who were, uh, you know, a bit grittier. Um, you know, I'm thinking of things like uh, Die Hard. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you've got yeah. your or Arnold and your Sylvester Stallone and all these sort of people and actually making sometimes quite tough movies and certainly gritty and more violent movies. And I think maybe um, Bond may not be as different for those. If, if he was going towards them, um, perhaps, you know, the audience didn't, didn't go with him. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so, which is a, a great pity. And then there was a, a six-year gap, and um, when there was some um, uh, legal problems and um, behind yes. the scenes, uh, and that really, you know, that became the point at which um, Barbara Broccoli and Michael D. Wilson really took over uh, a lot of the you know, responsibilities. From mm-hmm. the broccoli, uh, from the father, um, and then, uh, and so it created. It, it was a good time for them to create a new tone and a new direction, and that's where this Brosnan comes in. Who, funny enough, is like a mix between Connery and, and, and Moore. Yes, you know, he, he falls directly in between. He had that. And the grittiness and seriousness of, uh, of Connery. And uh, at the same time, you know, he, he had the lightness of touch that, that Roger Moore had, you know, with, with the with the union. So uh, I thought that was, you know, that was a really excellent choice. And Goldeneye is one of the, the great movies. I, I think what's mm-hmm. great is that each, every single Bond uh, actor, has at least one really, really great movie. Yeah, I agree. And Brosnan for, you know, is, is I mean, Brosnan for me is so special and uh, obviously it's really my kind of first experience with Bond in the way of like the cinema and, um, you know, getting to see it and it kind of becoming, you know, my Bond. And of course, you know, it, it helped that the video game was such a huge hit with uh, that generation and, you know, even con- continues to be uh, a popular thing. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, that movie helps reinvent Bond in the sense for uh, the, you know, late 20th century um and help it move into the 21st century and i think they gave him like you said they gave him just enough of and and really played to Brosnan's strengths which is he could he has a 
the ability to be cruel uh, and calculating and hard, but at the same time, he also has uh, an underlying, like, emotional nature to him that uh, is a little bit more like Roger or even Timothy Dalton's Bond. So he was really a nice mixture of all that had come before him. And, and I think, you know, it's always disappointing to me that, you know, I think his first two movies are very good. Um, and by the time they get to his last two movies, they're just leaning in too much to fantasticalism that it it takes away the grounded nature that Bond had really always had, um, even for all of its, you know, globe-trotting bluster. Yeah, I think that if, if you have a look at each of the Bonds, there is this uh, tendency for them to get bigger, you know, with mm-hmm. each successive movie. So, for instance, uh, Connery's last one on, on this contract was uh, The Only Lived Twice. You know, so he's going to Japan... He's got little Nelly. Uh, you know, he, he ends up inside a volcano, you know, where right. they're firing, where they're firing, firing um, um, spaceships <laughs> into the space. I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's not very realistic, you know, um, by any stretch of the imagination. And it was the same with, with Moore. You know, Spy Love Me was an enormous release. That was his big movie. And uh, and then they went bigger with Moonraker. Again, going right. Into space. You know, so, uh, and Brosnan, it was the same. You know, so, uh, and I suppose Craig was the same as well, with Spectre. You know, so, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you've got this thing of them always ending up, you know, in volcanoes. <laughs> For one reason or another. <laughs> it's the volcano effect, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh, yeah, I think also there's a... This is almost, um, almost like a, a consumption thing. The idea that um, if, if one thing is good, if, if you put more, have more of it, it's going to be better. Right. Yeah. Um, which isn't, well, it doesn't always work out. That way. Yeah. Um, absolutely. You know, but um, uh, but yeah. So I, I think there, there is a tendency to go that way, thinking that. If you pour more money into the production, it's going to be better. Uh, when sometimes if you just spend a bit more time writing it, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it can be, you know, uh, I'm not just talking about Bond here, you know, I'm talking about similar. Yeah, Bond. that's in it. You're absolutely right. That's that's a challenge for, I think, every franchise yeah, to, to come with, uh, you know, and, and to make sure that um, you are really thinking well about every story point that you you put into a story and how that impacts the character and all of those things absolutely and and you know i that's that's absolutely what they do you know as as we arrive to craig i mean they i think realize some of the mistakes from what they do with brosnan and their goal is to not replicate that and i mean to really do something that they'd never done and th- and this is something that I think is really fascinating in many ways. I've compared, uh, you know, what they do with Craig to what they did with Batman and Nolan, which is to say, you know, there was this kind of loose continuity between all of these characters before and, you know, with with Bond um, as with Batman before. 
and then somebody comes in and, and they reinvent the character but put it in a universe all of its own. And so from start to finish, you get a full arc with that character from beginning to end. And that's really, I think, the thing that they do here with Craig. And so whether you like it or not, he is in and of himself and his bond completely in a universe all his own, um, which is really special. And I think it, it makes it... Um, Something that uh, is is really important for the Bond series because it's not something that they had ever tried before. I think that there's um, there's something very interesting. I was just reading uh, a friend of mine, and we talk about um, comics. And uh, in the in in the sixties, um, there was often a division between DC and Marvel, right? and the and the difference was this in uh, Marvel comics. Right, you always followed the character, and so the so the stories were like serials that you needed to know, and and you needed to know what had happened the issue before in order to stand, understand the issue, the story you're reading now. Yeah, so there was continuity, right? Whereas on the uh, DC comics, you could pick up any Batman any Superman, any Superboy uh, comic, um, and each story stood on its own. You didn't need to have read, you know, the last hundred issues, yeah, to understand either the character or the story. And I think that the difference is that previous Bonds had been like that, had been like DC, right? And these Daniel Craig ones were like, were like Marvel comics. They were like, they had this serial... Um, and I think that's something that's changed really since Star Wars. When you think of Star Wars, Matrix, uh, Lord of the Rings, this idea of a franchise as being a, a serial, as well as uh, Dark Knight and Christopher So I think that, that this is the difference. But I, w- I was talking to uh, Paul... Uh, for this book, I, I talked to Daniel about this, and um, because there is a an emotional continuity as, as well right. as a, uh, as, a, as a continuity of, of the character in the story, and he said that it actually it developed organically, and it was more by accident than by an overall design. So they didn't have. Um, other than the ending um, uh, of, of Bond, um, of, of the last movie, um, they had no overall plan or idea for, for, for these movies. But as each movie progressed, and they thought about the character and the character development, then it happened organically. And it turned into this serial, this idea. So, so I think that's uh, that's very interesting that um, um, uh, it's all by accident and not by design. Yeah, well, and I, you know, obviously they kind of stumble into that when they immediately and and when they decide, you know, they're going to make a direct sequel for the first time. Uh, sure. You know, and, and, and so I, and I, I, yeah. 
Exactly, exactly. And of course, you know, uh, famous, all of the issues that go along with that movie because of writer strikes and everything, but they do, it, it, it does something for the franchise by putting it on a new trajectory um, and, and doing something that had never been done before, you know. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Paul, because this is, even unlike Star Wars, because, you know, you, with those books, you had an entire archive for each trilogy. So, you I mean, you have copious amounts of space for uh, just three films in each. And so I wanted to, to hear from you about the creation of, you know, the Bond archives, where not only do you do every single Eon production, but you also include uh, the original Casino Royale as well as Never Say Never Again. Um, and so giving a comprehensive look at Bond on film, um, for the most part, I mean, we don't cover, you know, the, the, the TV Bond that they did um, and everything. But so it, how in the world did you figure out, okay, what information do I put into this book and, you know, what information I don't because I, I can't even imagine the amount of information that you're looking through in the Bond archives. Well, the, the archives are very large. And I have to say, um, I was the first person to be allowed to uh, do a book uh, using the archives in, in this way. So, uh, so it was a great, a great honor, a great privilege. And a hell of a lot of work. Um, so, uh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, to give you an idea, so my, the first year, now I mean year, was me going down to um, the Eon uh, in London uh, um, into a, a bunker, not unlike uh, one designed for, well, it felt like going underground in, uh, in the James Bond movie designed by Ken Adams. Um, and uh, and spending a year looking at photographs, original eggs, um, contact sheets, proofs, um, every single over a million images, right, just on bond. And then uh, going over to America, we see uh, like the MGM archives. Was originally mm-hmm. bond was done with Eon and. United Artists, and then United, United Artists were bought by MGM. So MGM, um, those assets, um, United Artists was there. Um, and also going through original contracts at Banjack, which was in Los Angeles, and then going to um, a warehouse in a secret location I cannot reveal, uh, somewhere in, in the UK, um, where they have props, scripts, production documentation, all sorts of stuff that's like an Aladdin's cave. It's, it's like Q, you would imagine it was a bit like Q's lab, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, um, and that was amazing. And essentially, I, I got to have a look, I had complete access, and um, they were so lovely and um, Meg, Meg Simmons, who looks after the archive, and Jamie McMurray, gave me access to everything. Uh, you know, opened all the doors. Um, yes, yeah, you know, that's the, awesome. Um, you know, and then 
Barbara and Michael, you know, just, I mean, for them to you know, just trust me to do this, give me access mm-hmm. to material, and trusting that I, I wouldn't um, uh, betray that trust, you know, because obviously if I'm dealing with all, all of this material, um, there is sensitive, sensitive information, and you know, they have to trust that I'm not going to Mm-hmm. R- reveal secrets um you know what's coming out in the next bond movie and stuff like that right right so um so obviously i sign all the documents but but really it's about um digging in and looking at everything and saying well what's cool what's interesting mm-hmm. and then trying to string that together with into a story. So um, the very first day I'm in the production archives, there is uh, one drawer for Dr. Lowe in the file cabinet, and they have tons of all these um, cables between mm-hmm. Jamaica and London and Jamaica and New York for United Artists, David Picker and United Artists, uh, while they're filming. Um, going back and forth, having discussions, and um, the the film that they're actually filming, they're actually taking in Jamaica, and um, is um, is sealed. It's put on a plane to go back to America, and then from mm. America to the UK, where it's developed in the UK, seen by the um, uh, editor. Peter Hunt, who would later direct on most of the Secret Service. And, um, and then he would report on how it looks, whether it's any good wow. or not, or whether it's usable. That's yeah? so crazy. And, and then he would send those cables back to Terence Young and, um, and everybody else back in Jamaica. Um, and then if there was a problem, they then sent some of those bailings back to Jamaica for them to to sort out, to have a look in a local cinema. You know, because the developing, if they couldn't develop it and do all that sort of stuff, there wasn't enough the facilities in Jamaica to do that. So, right. um, um, so this, this was like, and you're following this process, you're seeing this. And then you've got, I mean, famously, the very first, literally the very first document I picked out, right, when I opened it up, was from Cubby Broccoli, who David Paper and I started saying, could you get somebody to go down to Saks Fifth Avenue and, uh, and pick up a couple of white bikinis to send us down to, <laughs> to Jamaica? All right, and we all know what happened to that bikini, to those bikinis. Right. You know? So, um, but, but this is the sort of stuff that you, that you find. Now, I say, right, I think that's an interesting thing. Right, literally, mm-hmm. right, and my editing process is to say, "Oh, I think this is cool. This should go in the book, right?" Because I think it's a story that people would like to know. And then it's mm-hmm. a matter of trying to join all these bits and pieces of information that I have in order to find out, you know, what the overall story. Is. Right. So I, it's ordered uh, chronologically. Um, so that you, you tell the story as the people um, experiencing it are, 
our experience in it. So, you know, if day one this happens, day two this happens, day three this happens, and then the people who are actually there, not commentators, not critics, nobody else, it's a completely historical retelling um, of the events that happened with the people who were there saying what they did and how they felt and, you know, uh, and just following it that way. So it's, so I want you to feel, uh, as you're reading it, as though you're there. It's in the present tense, as films are in the present tense. Yeah. So, um, and you never know what's going to happen next or what the problem is, a problem will arise. How are they going to solve it? Yeah. So, so this is what I was always looking for going through. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, um, as, uh, as quick and detailed as I am doing all the research, um, we did have a deadline. So uh, I then called upon uh, a lot of people I've worked with before in order to help um, process this information and to, and to write up. Um, a lot of different chapters. So this is why um, you, you've got Alan Cheshire and Jamie Russell and uh, Colin O'Dell and Michelle LeBlanc and, uh, and others um, um, uh, writing uh, some of the other uh, uh, some of the chapters in there as well. So um, you know, I had a lot of fun one year doing all the photography, one year looking through all the production documents. But then when it came to the deadline, I basically had another year in order to bring that all together um, in order to do um, the layouts and the text and to, and to finish the book. So um, that's how it happens. And in the end, uh, the story I thought that was most important um, was uh, the story of family. Um, even though Bond himself is a is a lone wolf operator, seemingly, he's out in the field mm-hmm. um, and trying to find out what's going on. And um, he has a team of people, um, Hugh, Money Penny, um, um, Luck Felix Leiter, trying to help him achieve his, his aims as well and to back him up. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting that uh, here we have a, a family. Uh, uh, Harry Saltzman for the broccoli and then the broccoli family continued. Um, and then I began to notice that a lot of the people uh, making the movies were all family. You know, suddenly you've got um, uh, this Corbold and his, his family, um, Neil, uh, uh, Peter Lamont, Neil Lamont. Uh, suddenly I noticed that there were all these other families involved in the, in the production of the, of the movies. And, uh, and the same people in the productions continue over periods of time. Um, so you've got uh, Arthur Worcester as second unit, you've got Peter Hunt as an editor moving to director, Tom Glenn as an editor moving to director, second unit, uh, second unit, etc. And so I thought that idea of planning was really the... Um, um, was the glue of the book. Uh, and that's really why I wanted all of these contributors um, to, the, to the franchise um, uh, to have their voice. And, and that's why it was an all big oral history. 
with over 150 people talking. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's so cool. And I think it works um, so well because I, I, it was really interesting to be able to see that continuing thread throughout um, each of the iterations of Bond with the ac- different actors is that many of the people behind the scenes are the same. And that, like you said, it does create this family aspect. And, you know, I mean, it started with two men and their families, you know, um, Saltzman and, and Broccoli in the first place, you know. And so I think that makes this a, a really special franchise because in many ways it has been under, you know, very consistent management in the sense of the, the people involved. Um, and I, I think you know, again, uh, that's something that, that hasn't happened in filmmaking, um, ever, honestly, because I mean, you know, you even look at some of the other major franchises, like you mentioned Star Wars, obviously, you know, that's no, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is, this is a really special thing. Uh, and so I really appreciate, um, the, the, the look behind the scenes with that, I think is really cool. Uh, and so, um, I w- I did want to ask you because you know obviously we do you cover all of the Eon productions, um, but uh, you decided to to cover uh, Casino Royale and Never Say Never Again, and and so I was interested to see them be uh, in the book. Um, what made you choose to go ahead and and put these two iterations of Bond in there? And uh, well, I thought that well they are Bond movies. Uh, one of them has um, uh, Sean Connery in, Never Say Never Again, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. And um, so I wanted to try and find a way of including them. As it happened, um, the right situation had changed, um, and so they all fell under the same banner. <laughs> so um, with United Artists, with MGM only not... Um, so, so I, I just, um, so when I asked, um, they said, yeah, it was as simple as that. There was no, there was no problem. So, but I, I thought that they should all be in there. And uh, if you don't ask, um, you know, they don't have an opportunity to say yes. But that's what happened. In fact, it was, it was quite nice. I had a nice, um, there were certain uh, diversions. You know, when you do research, and um, sometimes mm-hmm. you can go up down a, a rabbit hole and um, into other areas that you didn't expect to go. Uh, and for the uh, original 1960s version of Casino uh, Royale, I ended up getting in contact with Sam Shaw's family. Uh, and I had a really nice trip to, uh, when I was doing other research in, in America, I went to New York, met the family. They took me out to the family home. Um, uh, his daughters and had a lovely day with, with the daughter and then started going through all of Sam Shaw's and, and Larry Shaw's photography um, uh, on, on the movie which was, which was great um, so uh, so the, the act of doing it you know you, you get to doing these things means that you meet quite a lot of interesting people also on that trip uh, I was staying um, in New York and I suddenly found out that Joe Carr uh, lived like three blocks from the place of the stadium. I just called him up uh, one morning 
Hey. And uh, I said, could I come see him and say hello? Joe Carroll is the guy who came up with the um, the 007 logo with the seven being the gun. Yeah. Mm. So um, uh, so I I just went along one morning and and, and wanted to say hello, and uh, and he gave me a you know a few minutes to, uh, of an interview so that I could include him as a voice in in, in the book. You know, and he's That's a great so cool. designer. You know, he's great. Yeah. So so and when you're doing these books, you never you never know who you're going to be in contact with, because most of the interviews were archival interviews, mm-hmm. and then. Um, from uh, often, uh, like when John Cork did his um, uh, DVD extras, uh, he would do very extensive interviews, uh, and very little of them, um, very few words, are actually in the right. In the extras. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, you could have a two or three hour interview with Ken Adam, and um, but like three minutes or five minutes is actually in. On the DVD, so um, so I had complete access to all of that, um, and uh, but what was nice is that I was actually able on Skyfall, on Spectre, and on No Time to Die, uh, I could actually go on set. I could actually meet the um, uh, the heads of departments and directors, um, writers, producers, and um, all along, and do uh, and do interviews with them. You know, especially interviews for for the book, and include those quotes in in the book. So, because obviously the difference is for for a movie like Goldfinger or um, Goldeneye or Man with the Golden Gun, and you're going to go for gold. Um, we already know those movies. We we know how they came out. We know that they were successful. We know what is the what are the high points of the movies? What are the things that you remember? But when you're on a movie that hasn't come out yet, and it hasn't even been edited, and it's still filming, it's still being written or rewritten, you have no idea which moments are going to mm-hmm. connect with people. You have no idea about the tone or how it's going to turn out, or if it's even going to be successful. Uh, and so it was a very interesting experience to to meet um, each of these, these people and to interview them and to get a, a, a real snapshot of, uh, of what they're doing and, uh, and their approach to their work. So, so that was another, that, those were great experiences as, as well. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I can't imagine how neat it would be, you know, to be able to be in the thick of, you know, watching, you know, one of the films get made um, and, and get to have that experience. Um, and so uh, I, I do have to ask, you know, uh, obviously getting that opportunity to be on those three films sets and, um, you know, getting to see the script and everything. How did that change your perception of, you know, Bond and the process of story making for Bond and, and even just the, your experience of those films. Oh, it's awful. Um, it's, it's, awful <laughs> what, uh, it's, it's awful watching the movies when you know everything about it beforehand. Right, so it's, it's not just that you know the plot, but 
you know the image because I've seen what when I'm on set and um, or sometimes not on set but just in sometimes I would go I wouldn't go on set but I'd be in the studio and I'd spend spend all day just looking at photography that had come up just come off the set so I would see thousands of, of, of images and then perhaps go to uh, when I'm visiting Pinewood uh, I'd go and perhaps read an update of the script, perhaps read and uh, see all these images, and then if anybody was available to be interviewed, then go off and interview them. Yeah. And um, you know, at a moment's notice. So um, uh, so you just take what you can while you're there. So so there would be a lot of instances where that would happen and you wouldn't um, uh, I wouldn't actually go on set. Yeah. Or perhaps I'd go on the back lot and see them prepping or something. Um, so there was lots of different experiences like that. But I would know, I knew what every single shot in the movie would look like because I've seen all the photography. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the production design, uh, I've seen storyboards. And um, uh, even when I interviewed the editors, um, I would, um, you know, I would see what they were editing. You know, I would see bits and pieces, right? And um, so it's very difficult to disassociate from the movie when you go to see it. Mm. And, and normally it takes, um, it takes a few years to, to forget the movie and to come back to it in order to see the movie again uh, with fresh eyes. So, um, so I think... Um, so it is difficult, and I completely understand why people who are in movies uh, find it difficult to, to watch themselves on screen mm-hmm. because they they have their reaction to the movie is based on their personal experience of that particular day, etc., which is completely disassociated from the story of the movie. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so it, it, it does affect it. So I have to wait uh, years uh, before I can go back and, and look at a movie. Yeah, I can only imagine how, how difficult that would be, especially, you know, uh, being a fan of it. I mean, in, in some ways, it, it makes sense, you know, uh, when you were doing Star Wars Archives and, you know, George talks about that idea of, um, you know, he and he's talked about this many times where he didn't really experience star Wars like a normal person, you know, oh, uh, it, he, he never got that chance because, you know, it was always in his head and, and then he was always working on the, the film or the story or the, you know, the TV show. And, and so you never get that opportunity to see it through the eyes of a, of a fan in the same way. Uh, and unless it's, you know, getting to experience that vicariously through, you know, somebody you know, and even that's not quite the same. So, yeah, I no, can only especially imagine. especially if you've got hypercritical uh, friends, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, yes. But um, I remember um, on Star Wars, for example, uh, I remember Richard Chu, I think it was, uh, one of the editors, when there was a rough cut of um, the first Star Wars movie. And... Um, uh, him being, because he had, uh, Richard Chu, Paul Hirsch, had not been part of the original 
they'd been hired as editors after the film had finished um, shooting. Yeah. So in other words, they were only seeing the material for the first time. And, and so they had no associations with the, with the production at all. And when it was, uh, when the first rough cut was put together, Richard Chu sort of said that he was like buzzing because he knew straight away that this was going to be you know, really work, but this was going to be a great movie. This was something we'd never seen before. He was super excited. So, um, uh, and I, th I think it's the same for a lot of filmmakers. It's very difficult for filmmakers to, um, uh, to feel the same vibe as others um, because the, uh, the intent and the visuals and the storytelling inside their head uh, may be uh, different or compromised by the realities of actually shooting the movie. I think very particularly with George Lucas, that, that was the point. Um, I thought it was very interesting um, on um, No Time to Die, for example, um, that there was such a, um, there was a really good vibe on the set in terms of people were very, very excited. And they felt that something was being uh, something special was being, being done. I felt very much that way. And also, what happens is when you're filming these, when the production people are shooting the movie, etc., um, it's a very, very long production, very long period of time, and uh, not much sleep, and under immense pressure. For months, sometimes years on end, and um, this takes a, a great toll, um, a great psychological toll. Uh, and people are, you know, sometimes they need a bit of cheering up when you're, you know, uh, you know in order to keep them going. Some people have that naturally, but really, it's, it's a very, very tough um, grind. You know, despite the apparent glamour of doing. Right. These these big big productions, and um, you know when when you're actually uh, uh, when you're actually there, you see, you know, it is hard physical graph to do these uh, uh, to do these productions, and, uh, and there's a lot of perseverance and a lot of hard headedness and stubbornness in order to get them done. You know, in order to get them done on time, on budget. You know, and to the um, uh, and to the quality that they mm -hmm. want, and that's what yeah. the producers are, gr are great at doing. You know, I, I I think that the producers they know exactly uh, they've had all the experience, and uh, I, I always remember there was, there was one point where um, every day there's some sort of crisis, and uh, I remember I was interviewing Barbara and Michael at, at, at the time, and. Um, uh, you know, it was slightly delayed because they had to deal with something. Uh, and then um, I remember well, Michael just like shrugging his um, uh, his shoulders and saying, well, yeah, it's a crisis, but it's not as bad as, and then he would quote 
previous crises on previous Bond <laughs> movies. <laughs> you know, if you think this is bad, you know, then you should have seen this on, you know, XX, so and so movie. So, um, so yeah, these are really, really experienced um, you know, producers, and they know how to deal with the crisis, you know, to get through and, 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 to, uh, and, to, and to do it in a very, to do it in a very nice way. I remember there was, um, which was, I think it was on Skyfall, uh, and they had people, um, they'd hired people to, um, I think there was a problem with catering, right, and Barbara was very unhappy, and she said, we need better food, right? And then made sure that everybody got better food. Uh, and then she made sure that everybody, um, that there was somebody around that could do massage, you know, so that everybody had to have a massage in order to relax them. You know, I mean, it was all this sort of stuff where, you know, these are real, real, um, to try to make it, you know, a tough situation as, uh, as nice as possible. So I thought that was perfect. Yeah, that's. I think that's really cool. Well, you know, you had asked me uh, at the beginning, you know, th- something that I I learned, and I, I was wondering, you know, you mentioned one of the things uh, that you kind of found was the idea of of family, you know, um, throughout the the productions. And was there anything else that you feel like in your research that really stood out to you um, about? you know, the character of James Bond, the, the productions, um, the actors involved. I, what what were some of the big takeaways that you came away with after your research? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think how hard it is, as I was saying. I mean, I am, um, yeah, and that they're personable. These are not... Um, the style is not draconian. The style is personal. So what the, uh, what, and it all comes from the top, it comes from the producers, what they're saying to, to their people, can you do that? We need this. How can you do this in a creative way but still do it on budget? I mean, I always remember, um, so it's a problem solving. So um, I remember on, um, you know, that they wanted to film the tank chase in St. Petersburg for Goldeneye. And they got permissions and then they started filming and they filmed some of it in St. Petersburg, but they realized that they couldn't do a lot of the things they wanted to do. So the, the producers turned around and said, okay, Let's build it on the back lot, uh, Leavesden, uh, and we'll shoot it in Leavesden. And, uh, and they did it, you know, because they needed to save money as well. Right? It was much cheaper to build St. Petersburg on the back lot, you know, and put a tank through it and destroy lots of buildings and, and, and vehicles and cameras, because uh, they ran over the camera at that stage. Um, and um, uh, and so it's this aspect of problem solving and creative solutions that I think are very good. There was another time Chris Colbold, he'd set up all the 
equipment to go out to Vietnam in order to put it on a ship, all the equipment to go out in order to um, um, shoot, I think, was it uh, one of the guys? Anyway, and um, said, so, okay, it's, it's on the ship, it's going out, it's all in containers, they've got all these motorbikes and everything, and then they found out, no, um, uh, we don't have permission for Vietnam anymore. We've got to find another location in the area. And so they ended up rerouting, getting permission for Thailand, and then rerouting the ship, you know, mid-sea, mid mid-ocean, in order to go to, um, to Thailand. So it's always about this aspect of, I think is very interesting, the fact that these people are not just creative, but they're practical, and, um, and they get the job done. Uh, and I, I find that um, fascinating. And I was, it was always those stories um, of those pe of people thinking on their feet. There was another one um, where uh, they were filming in Meteora, um, where they were up in these uh, in Greece, and they had these giant, um, they had these monks um, who didn't want to cooperate. So they, oh yes, um, you know, basically they thought they had permission. Again, it was another idea where. They, they thought they'd had permission to film. Uh, and then the monks said, well, we, you know, we didn't get permission, you know. And so uh, and st they started to put up banners and try and interfere. So, um, so they were on the top of this giant sort of rock formation, Meteora. Uh, and so the, the Bond production set up on the next one, next door, and built a set that covered and masked the one next door, the uh, monastery next door, so that they could film, you know. So it was, yeah, I, I mean, these are crazy, crazy things to do. Um, but they get, get the films finished mm -hmm. completely. And yeah. I think this is the thing that I saw on No Time to Die as well, in that it was very clear that they were doing everything that they could, that, that they would have these meetings uh, in night where the producers, Barbara Michael and, and Greg Wilson, um, Daniel Crane, and, um, and the director, they would meet at night in the, what do you call it, um, uh, after filming, after they've gone through all the sets in order to check the lighting and setups for the next day, right? But they're late at night, hammering out, complaining about the script to each other and to try and find better ways to deal with the script in order to improve it. You know, this is a this is the not the not people who are happy with with what they have. They're always seeking to improve mm -hmm. on 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 what they've done. You know, mm -hmm. If it means oh God, that, that was great, that was that was a great shot. But there's a better way of doing this, right? Okay, what's the better idea? Do we all agree? Do we have the budget for it? Let's make the budget for it. You know, so I think that this is a very collaborative experience. Uh, and it's only collaborative because the producers give everybody the freedom to be collaborative. Mm. And that goes all the way down um, through the production. I mean, I was talking... 
and, and you know diverse people, heads of departments, etc. Uh, and then some of the art directors uh, and other people on the set, and they all wanted to add their own bit to the, to the movie. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, we were looking through your uh, James Bond archives book, Paul, and there was uh, there was this great picture of so and so in the background. We mm. wanted to include that in the background. So I've drawn this in, yeah, and we put it in. You know, uh, you know, all, everybody was a fan. Everybody was trying to add their own bit um, um, to the to the movie in order to improve it, make it more interesting, uh, and, and to give value for money for the for the viewer. I was thinking of like one, uh, you know, last question. Uh, and having spent so much time with Bond uh, and this character and, you know, the people who have been responsible for bringing him to us for so many years now, why do you think Bond has lasted so long? And, well, well, there are two reasons for that. Uh, I mean, first of all, he's um, this really horrible guy, right? Um, but he has this, you know, he goes, basically his job is to go around killing people. I mean, let, let's face it, that's why he has to. Yeah. And, but he has this veneer of, um, you know, bow tie, tuxedo, only the best things. Because he knows that, you know, he's licensed to kill, he's a... Uh, um, uh, he's basically in a war at all times. He is a soldier. Um, and so uh, he could die at any moment. So he's got to enjoy every moment of his life. Um, I mean, this is what Fleming understood about the character. And he brought the character, uh, which is also from his own experience and his own ideas. Uh, and that's that's very important. It's very important to know that every single moment, um, Bond knows that it could be his last. And um, so I think, you know, he has to do these horrible things. He's trained himself to do these horrible things, and um, and he's. Uh, I think what's really interesting about Daniel Craig's uh, iteration is that you see from the beginning that this idea that he falls in love, right? And as soon as he can't trust Espelon, right, it's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once that he's betrayed, he realizes that he cannot trust anybody else, that this is part of his learning process to be an OO7. He cannot trust, so he cannot love, so he cannot have a family, he cannot have a life like others. And then, um, uh, you know, through the other movies, he sees that character um, himself reflected in others. So in Quantum of Solace, he meets Camille, who's basically um, out for revenge because she was betrayed. And he sees what he will become if he carries on looking for revenge. Right? So it's about him 
um, Quantum of Solace is definitely, um, uh, I think, uh, a good movie. But um, I think that it's misunderstood because the movie right. can only exist with, as, uh, with Casino Royale. So the mm-hmm. thing is that if, if, you, if you think of the character and the story as, as one, then it works. Right? Yes. Because then you understand what the character is going through. Right? So, um, uh, and then it becomes uh, a matter of him uh, basically carrying out his orders without fear. Mm-hmm. When he meets Madeline, right, suddenly he understands that there are other people like him who's had a life, who are as damaged as him. Mm-hmm. And, and he finds a connection with her, right? Because she understands it, right? And so the whole idea of trust, right, raises its, its head again. So obviously no time to die. That trust is, you know, at the beginning of the movie, that trust is destroyed. Right? So again, what almost, you know, um, so almost this idea of him becoming a normal person, like you and I, is lost for me. So, um, so in terms of what's attractive about him is that I, I think that what this series of movies have done uh, and what Daniel Craig and his characterization um, ha- have done is they've opened up that idea, which is very you know, John Le Carre, if you think about it, this mm-hmm. idea of living in a very cold world where you can't trust anybody, uh, and um, and even your private life is compromised, um, because you start to think of your private life in terms of of the Cold War and in terms of enemies. Yeah, you don't think of your private life in terms of of, of love and trust. So um, uh, so I, I I think that this is. Um, what's really good and what's wrong and what Daniel Craig and his iteration got absolutely correct in this spot on. As to, um, yeah, so I think that, uh, and also this idea is that this character um, is willing to sacrifice himself for, for higher ideals. He's willing to do horrible things to essentially break the law to kill people on behalf of his government in a foreign land um, because, uh, because he has certain ideas. So, um, so this idea of self-sacrifice is also very big, uh, with which Daniel Craig has brought, uh, and his, his mm-hmm. stories have brought to the fore. Now, I think that's very, uh, that's very interesting. Because he brings him, I think, closer to the idea of um, soldiers, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, mm-hmm. all these modern ideas of what it means to be uh, to be a killer. Absolutely, um, and I'm excited. Uh, you know, obviously, at this point, to see where they go next. I mean, uh, the the sky's the limit, really, with what they can do. And so, uh, Paul, for you. Uh, where can you know people find you and follow you um, if they would like to to catch up with you and see you know what uh, projects you've done and, and of course what projects you may have coming up in the future? 
Sure. Well, um, I'm usually on Twitter uh, at Kirscht, at K-E-R-S-H-E-D, and uh, also the same on Facebook. So those are really the ways that I let people know what I'm doing, and uh, I tweet daily and um, tell people all sorts of nonsense. And sometimes they believe me, sometimes they don't. Awesome. Well, appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it was, you know, I encourage anybody to to pick up this book. It is phenomenal. If you are, if they can, if they can pick it up, it's pretty. It's heavy. true. It's true. It is very heavy, uh, but it is absolutely worth it. Uh, as a Bond fan, uh, I don't know if there is any better book uh, for for a Bond fan to to check out and and to read. Um, and I'm. Very glad that they allowed you to do this. And uh, hopefully, uh, Bond will continue strong. And so, you know, you'll need a new edition, uh, you know, in, in a few years. So, <laughs> well, as they say, Paul Duncan will return. That's right. That's right. Well, of course, uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, you know where you can find me on social media, Matt Rushing 2 all over the place, and all the podcasts you can find me on. You've listened to this show enough. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Thank <laughs> you.